0: Hi, FreshEd listeners, it's Will. Before we start today's episode, which will be another rerun of a Flux episode, I wanted to let you know about a research project I've been working on. The project is trying to empirically understand how podcasts are used in higher education. This is a really important topic to me because I know FreshEd is being used in over a hundred universities around the world, but I have no idea exactly how they're being used. I've heard one off stories from some of you about how the podcast has shaped your learning or how you've incorporated them into your class. But I want to get a more systematic understanding. That's why we've created a new survey that you're invited to take. It only takes about 15 minutes. You can find it at freshedpodcast.com slash survey, or in the show notes. Okay, now on with today's rerun. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Usually on FreshEd, you hear me talk to established academics about their work. Today, we air the second episode of Flux, a FreshEd series where graduate students turn their research interests into narrative-based podcasts. In this episode, Yardane Amran crafts a narrative that shows complex theories in action. He doesn't simply tell his listeners what these ideas are or name them explicitly. He takes us to disparate places from universities in India and Puerto Rico, to Occupy Wall Street, and makes a connection between them by embedding stories within stories. Through this nested narrative, he shows us how the streets are schools by exploring spaces of activism as educative sites, while leading us to the core idea at the heart of his episode, the relationship between debt and violence. Yardane Amran is a freelance journalist and master's student in geography at the University of British Columbia.
1: One night in October 2016, a student was attacked by a mob of his peers in his dorm at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. At some point the next morning, he disappeared, never to be seen again. His name was, is Najib Ahmed. He was 27 at the time, a first-generation college student, a mama's boy from a rural village in the neighboring state, by all accounts shy and still trying to settle in and make friends. Also Muslim, and many of his peers suspected he'd been targeted deliberately, especially and for no other reason other than because he was Muslim. Protests like this one erupted across the country. Whereas Najib
2: became a bitter slogan of a movement. That Najib was beaten up by a group of a uh, large number of people, of whom there are multiple witnesses of who went and deposed. And the way he was beaten up the previous night, and uh, the fact that he disappeared the next morning, these two are not unconnected events. And from the first day onwards, I mean, if one uh, just listens to those people who were present on that day, uh, the lines on which uh, he was being abused while he was being beaten up, uh, talking about how he's a Muslim, there is this one thing that is sort of used as an abuse by uh, people in the RSS against Muslims. I mean, uh, in Hindi, it's, they keep, keep saying that hai katua hai which translates into the circumcised one, which is what they call the Muslims. Uh, that's what they were saying. They were saying that we will send you to 72 virgins, which is okay. Well, uh, which is what they said that in heaven there would be 72 virgins for you, so basically we are going to kill you. And then they, in front of everyone they said that, uh, they even told the warden there, that you leave him for the night, we'll settle him uh, for the night, you don't need to intervene. And that's what they eventually did, they settled him.
1: This is Umar Khalid. He's a PhD candidate at JNU, a prominent student activist, also Muslim. And at the start of 2016, He'd been arrested under a colonial-era sedition law for allegedly chanting anti-national slogans. He spent 10 days in jail and came out with a target on his head. I met him one evening in April 2017 in his bare-bones dorm room. And when we spoke, Umar was intent on making it clear that Najib was no aberration. No, he was just the latest victim in a long line of state-sponsored violence.
2: See, in India, what's been unfolding over the past couple of years, ever since the new government, uh, led by Narendra Modi as the Prime Minister, came in 2014, uh, headed by the Hindu Nationalist Party, Bharati Janata Party. Uh, What has unfolded is a series of attacks. On the one hand, these
1: attacks have targeted land and labor, Umar said. You might have heard about the most recent example, a handful of corporate-friendly agriculture reforms the BJP tried to sneak through parliament last summer, a move that backfired and instead has catalyzed perhaps the biggest farmers' protest in the country's history.
2: On the other hand, there has also been a very communal agenda, which has been the co-defining principle of the Rashtriya swayamsevak Sevak Sangh, of which BGP is affiliated to, of creating India into a Hindu Rashtra, a Hindu nation, uh, where uh, Dalits minorities, women, will be reduced to a second-class citizen status.
1: The Rashtriya Swayama Sevak Sangh, or RSS, is a paramilitary volunteer organization that runs the largest private school network in the country, if not the world. Some 12,000 schools teach some 3.5 million students a curriculum rooted in an ideology of racial purity, inspired only half-abashedly by the Nazis.
2: So these kind of campaigns started. Alongside that, what also started was an attack, a very concerted attack on universities. And this attack was also because this government has also a very distinct project for higher education in India. Uh, I mean, at one level, there is an entire market uh, where this government would want to just sell off higher education too. Uh, about a couple of years back, Narendra Modi went to the WTO meet and actually made education into a tradable commodity.
1: We'll come back to this privatization project and the protest movement it sparked in a bit.
2: At another level, because this is a very ideologically motivated government which follows the ideology of the Rashtri Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS. Uh, as I said, whose core defining principle is to convert India into a Hindu nation. Yeah, Hindu Rashtra as they call it. Uh, they also realized that uh, they have to control young minds, and this is where young minds think and they do research, and they uh, are going to write books and write uh, uh, opinion pieces, which are going to shape opinions in the future. So it's very important to ca- to capture this space and to. Uh, one thing that's very synonymous with BJP government, whenever it comes to power, it uh, goes about saffronizing education, it goes about rewriting history books.
1: Saffron is the sacred color of Hinduism.
2: It goes about se- uh, severely expunging certain texts and certain readings from uh, syllabus that is taught in schools and colleges and universities as to what can be taught and what cannot be taught, to push through this agenda of their, of to convert India into Hindu Rashtra.
1: Rewriting history is, forgive me, a textbook strategy of state power across the political spectrum. In India, as Umar says, the project is being pursued by the right. In the United States, the left has been pushing, for instance, the 1619 project into school curricula in an effort to reinterpret the country's founding through a lens of structural racism, an effort which has, by the way, catalyzed a whole host of reactionary legislation from conservatives. And as a Jew who grew up attending an Orthodox yeshiva, I can tell you that the history of the Nakba, when in 1948 some 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from their land by Jewish Zionists, is a history deliberately erased from much Jewish curricula. The examples are pretty much endless, but the point is clear. Education is deeply politicized, from how history is remembered to understanding education as a tradable good. And this politicization is not just the stuff of conversation, it has real-world, uneven consequences. Umar's point, as I hear it, is that to understand Najib's disappearance, to accurately analyze how second-class citizens are made, to grasp what has happened to education over the past half-century, we have to connect the racial project to the economic project, the
2: ideological violence to the physical violence. Uh, I remember the night that I met uh, Najib's mother, the, uh, the day after he disappeared. Uh, she was uh, in tears. She was uncontrollable, and she was repeatedly saying one thing: that I told him not to go to JNU. I told him not to go to JNU. It's not safe for Muslims to study in JNU. And the day I find my son back, I'm not going to. Ins- I'm not. I'm going to make sure that he does not pursue his studies here because I'm concerned for his safety. Now, you do that to one Najib, and you send a message to a lot of other people that there is a sense of insecurity amongst a sizable section of Muslim students that what happened to Najib might happen to us tomorrow, and nothing will be done. The university administration will simply stay, will simply take its hands off. That's saying that we are not responsible. That is what the university administration told uh, Najib's family. That whatever happens in what in a, in any part of the university, that's not the university administration's responsibility. Contrast this with what they were saying back in February 2016. February 2016, what were the allegations against us? That we raised anti-national slogans. We raised slogans against the country.
1: In the year-long investigation that followed, the government was unable to prove whether these slogans
2: were actually said nor if they were, who actually said them. But these were still slogans. No one was harmed. No one was physically harmed. But still the university administration acted so promptly that without giving us any time or any opportunity to defend itself, we were rusticated from the university. Within 24 hours, we were suspended and then rusticated from the university. Now, some student is being beaten up and he disappears in the university and the university administration says that, well, whatever happens in some part of the university is not our responsibility. So you can see how... The university administration, the police, is being used by the ruling party today in the center to pursue its agenda within uh, the university spaces, uh, which is a very exclusionary agenda, which is a very discriminatory agenda. And they're trying to sort of shoot many birds with the same uh, shot. Uh, to sort of sell over our universities, impose their Brahminical worldview in universities, saffronize university campuses and to ensure that there is no voice of dissent.
1: I left the interview with Umar Shaken. I spent months on campus, at protests outside the Central Bureau of Investigations, or CBI, at the high court, at campus, and yet eventually the protests fizzled out. The CBI investigation concluded without charges. The Justice for Najib posters were papered over around campus. And I too gave up and tabled the story. Despite the fact that he went missing in broad daylight, to this day what happened to Najib remains a secret. Those who might know something are understandably scared to speak out. Most believe he's dead. This is not another true crime story, though. In 2019, Modi won a second term with a loud democratic mandate. This predictably emboldened the BJP and its supporters. Last year, Umar was almost murdered by a Hindutva follower who tried to assassinate him outside the Indian press club. By a stroke of luck, the gun jammed. And then in February 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning, the government charged him with conspiracy to incite the Delhi riots, which left some dozens of Muslims and Hindus dead. As if to confirm the spectacle intended for the case, the police presented him and his lawyers with, I kid you not, over one million pages of evidence. Umar turned 34 this month. September will mark a year behind bars. The day after I interviewed Umar in his dorm at JNU, 9,000 miles away at the University of Puerto Rico, another student activist was charged by the government for participating in a protest. And
3: now, can you hear me? Now it's good. Good? Yes? I don't know. This is crazy. Um, I will just say that I'm Veronica Figueroa Huertas. I'm just a 26-year girl (laughs) or, you know adult, <laughs> that um, trying to figure out what I'm going to do right now with my life.
1: For the past three years, though, Veronica's life has mostly been on hold. How often do you have to go to court?
3: Um, you know, like every month um, since May 2017. Wow. Every psych- month.
1: For, so that's every month now, now three years.
3: Yes, we did. Um. A lot of, I don't know. It was really
1: um,
3: awful. The uh, horrible, horrible. I hate that process, and it's not the first time that the university administration cooperated. You know, as I said, in two thousand ten and eleven, they expelled students for being part of the student movement, Mm. and it's different, you know. But the impact that it has in your life. Um, I, I'm not gonna say that it it works because um, every situation has needs to be measured by you know by what it is, but it's really violent because I I I, I, I had plans of going outside Puerto Rico to study <laughs> other things and you know I, I, yeah. and my other friends too and I can't do that. I can't do that for three years. I have to stop every plan because I'm a poor person.
1: This wasn't the future Veronica had envisioned for herself when she first decided she wanted to go to UPR. That was around the end of 2010, when a massive student strike forced 10 of the 11 UPR campuses to close for close to three months. Students were protesting severe budget cuts and layoffs at the university and other public institutions. Veronica was in high school at the time. She remembers she would come home from school and her mom would tell her about the latest updates from the strike that she'd read in the newspaper.
3: So I was receiving a lot of information about the University of Puerto Rico. And at that moment, I want to be exactly as those students of mm-hmm. the 2010. Mm-hmm. I want to be an activist. I want to fight for the education because what my mom always said, something that my, my mom always said is that you can lose everything but you can lose what you learn you can lose as a the government or anyone can take so you know they can stole everything for you but they can't stall what you know so the most important thing for everyone is their education so it's like that is really important to me it's mm-hmm. like a mantra right. so i want to be like those people and then i became those one of those people.
1: And so when she got to campus in 2013, that's exactly what she did. She became one of those people. Her mom tried to dissuade her. Five student leaders from the 2011 strike had been expelled.
3: She was like, um, you need to be careful. Um, you are in, at the university for only four or five years. This is, you know, like, uh, like part of the university life. Then you're not going to think like that. You're going to change. Those people are going to leave you alone. And those kinds of things. She she thinks that it was really um, like a phase Mm -hmm. at the university. Um, And I was totally frustrated because, you know, like, mom, this is not a phase. You know, like, you teach me to think like this. you encourage me to be critical and <laughs> you encourage me to, you know, to fight for the things that you, you believe in, for you want. So I want public education mm. that, is, uh, that is accessible to everyone.
1: Veronica couldn't yet see the dangers that her mom could see looming. By 2017, she was a senior and leader in the student movement. The 2011 strike had left the movement in shambles, but Veronica had helped rebuild organizing capacity. And then in January, a fiscal board was created to manage Puerto Rico's worsening debt burden. The board was filled with U.S. bureaucrats. And its quote-unquote first recommendation was for the Puerto Rican government to cut UPR's budget in half, to raise tuition, and to close five of its 11 campuses. At
3: the beginning, a lot of people in Puerto Rico, including my mom and my dad, and my family, they were, you know, like, th- their opinion about the fiscal board was that the fiscal board were, was coming to Puerto Rico to, you know, like to clean the house. To clean the house and to put everything in order and to control our financial um, planning because our government is, is incapable to, to do that.
1: Puerto Ricans, of course, have reason to point a finger at corruption. Recently, the governor was forced to resign after leaked messages exposed nepotistic contracts for relief work related to Hurricane Maria. But despite its seriousness, corruption is also a sneaky scapegoat, a symptom trafficking as a root cause. It doesn't materialize out of thin air. Veronica and her comrades had been studying Puerto Rico's political economy, and had come to understand the structural conditions underlying the debt crisis?
3: For me, it's really simple at this point of my life. and that I like to say that I was born in debt because, you know, I can read in the newspapers that Puerto Rico has a debt. But uh-huh, how does, you know, that doesn't explain how is my life um, being impacted by the debt. Mm. And I think that, it's easier to understand um, if you are poor and mm-hmm. if you live in, in bad conditions because you have been, you know, um, crashing to the wall right, every day of your life because you have people in the university that doesn't give a fuck about the, the tuition being more expensive every year. Right. Because you know, my dad is going to pay for that, and I, I have a bank account that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, go go low. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, talking with other people and asking a lot of questions, and it's really you know, it takes time. It's it's a mm-hmm. job.
1: I met Veronica through a webinar organized by the Debt Collective, an organization that was formed out of Occupy Wall Street. Hannah Appel, an activist and professor of anthropology at UCLA, is one of its co-founders.
4: And so we're all at this bar somewhere in New York. I'd really just gotten there and didn't know what was up. And David was like, oh, you know, I did this crazy thing the other day, like we were down at Wall Street and you know, I don't know what's going to come of it and blah, blah, blah. So talking about the very first days and then like four days after we got together, Occupy Wall Street protesters were kettled on the Brooklyn Bridge and it just erupted all over the news media.
1: David is David Graeber, a renowned anthropologist who wrote one of the definitive histories of debt. Perhaps too obvious to say, but Occupy was a life changing experience for pal. She approached the space as an activist scholar and used her skills as an anthropologist to document the movement.
4: You know, so there was all of this um, rhetoric, and quite rightly so, but hand-wringing and panic around financialization, right? And very often, of course, in the wake of the 2008 mortgage crisis, which is the precise wake that Occupy takes place in. You know,
1: opaque financial technologies like collateralized debt obligations and structured finance loans.
4: Right, but it seems like it's this world that is sort of like, completely detached from the so-called real economy, right? We all know, we can all kind of rehearse that. But the connection that people in Occupy are making is to say, and what that David says in that interview, like, one person's finance is another person's debt.
1: One person's finance is another person's debt. Notably, the phrase has been mostly buried under the success of Graeber's other more famous coinage, we are the 99% but one person's finance is another person's debt is like this little skeleton key hiding in plain sight. And the longer you sit with it, the farther back you trace the history of debt, the more likely you'll be forced to reckon with some fundamental, unexamined premises underlying your worldview. For example, why must one pay one's debts? Here's Graber in a 2012 interview on the show Uprising about his book Debt, The First 5,000 Years.
5: Let's try to figure out what is debt. I mean, the basic definition of the concept is unclear. Uh, It's not any kind of moral obligation, uh, although people try to extend the notion in that way. Well, a debt is just one type of promise. It's a promise that I like to say is corrupted by math and violence. That point about violence is critical. When you have debts between equals, they really are just a promise, and promises, of course, can be renegotiated when circumstances change. Rich people can be incredibly kind, generous, and understanding when dealing with other rich people. I even call it the communism of the rich Mm -hmm. at one point. You know, of course, it's from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs we will work something out. And and that's what we saw in 2008, where they made trillions of dollars worth of debt vanish through the waving of various complicated magic wands of one sort or another. Now, When it's a debt that you owe them, on the other hand, suddenly it's sacred. It's a question of very basic morality. You should be ashamed of yourself even suggesting how could you say. It's it's amazing, and this has been true constantly. Think about it. Most people who have ever lived have been told that they are debtors. How could that be the case? Debt has has allowed us to create this morality, which is perverse if you think about it, because what... The last thing we need in this world right now is people to work even more. Uh, People are working way too much. It's destroying the ecosystem. It's so the growth, little growth levels that are demanded by our current economic system are clearly unsustainable.
1: In other words, Wall Street financiers, capitalists, do not conjure their money out of thin air, at least not exactly. They make it off the backs of others. And for Appel, one of the critical points here is that these backs are not colorless. This isn't just an economic story. Race and class intersect, like Umar was saying about the BJP's privatization and saffronization project. Capitalism, as some scholars argue, makes profit by creating, exploiting, and ultimately accumulating difference. And all identities are fair game.
4: But... When you actually look right now at the systematic nature of these forms of indebtedness, which is to say the sort of staggering totals of household debt, and you disaggregate them, what you see in this country, we can talk about it beyond this country too, but what you see in the United States is that African American households hold this debt in out of all proportions, so radically disproportionately to their uh, whatever demographics in the population. Same with Latinx families, same with native families, right? And in order to understand those forms of disproportionate burden, we have to go way back before Reagan and Thatcher, right? So then we're talking about intergenerational white wealth transfer, why it is that me as a white person I am more likely demo? it's not that there aren't fucking poor white folks of course there are but we white people are more likely statistically speaking to have one relative maybe two relatives maybe an aunt maybe a grandma if my parents couldn't pay I could reach out to somebody else in, you know and say hey can you get can you lend me that right because of the forms of intergenerational labor theft land theft racism workplace discrimination right that all of these groups have faced and for that you you were going back to settler colonialism, right? we're going back to the theft of land from indigenous people, we're going back to the transatlantic slave trade, to understand their intergenerational endurance into the present.
1: Today, the Debt Collective has been organizing to get all $1.2 trillion in federal student debt canceled. President Biden has the executive power to do it with a single signature. But so far, he's resisted the pressure and reneged even on his own promise to cancel a paltry $10,000 for some students. Either way, canceling all the debt, literally bringing back the ancient custom of the rolling jubilee when kings would cancel peasants' debts every seven years, is just the beginning. To make the change lasting, we also have to change the systemic conditions that got us into this mess in the first place.
4: So if student debt is canceled, which I'm, we are closer to it than we ever have been in this particular struggle, all of it, and there still is no such thing as public college anymore, what the fuck does it matter? What we need is a public option in education. The University of Michigan system, the University of California system, the University of New Mexico system, all of the, the CUNY system, the SUNY system, all of these state systems, all of these city college systems, All they have to be fucking free. They have to be tuition free. And it's like, oh, look at, listen to the radical hope person. No, that's what public college used to mean. This is historical amnesia that people, I send my kids to the public school right across the street. He's in second grade. What do we know that means? That means that I don't have to pay, but if I sent him to the private school, I would have to pay. It's like people forget that that's what public college fucking meant. That's what it meant.
1: Students aren't taking the privatization of education sitting down though. In the wake of Occupy, itself in the wake of the Arab Spring, students have been rising up to resist the enclosure of education. There's the UPR strike in 2010 and 2011. The Quebec strikes in 2012, when half a million students across the province protested against steep tuition hikes. There's the Fees Must Fall movement in South Africa in 2015. I could go on. A year before Najib was disappeared, in 2015, the Occupy University Grants Commission movement, or Occupy UGC, took off at JNU. Similar to budget cuts at UPR, at JNU the Modi government slashed the already paltry funding for graduate research scholarships. Umar had laid out the stakes clearly.
2: Now where will the students who want to pursue research go? Uh, The ones who can afford 5 or 10 lakhs a year, which is a lot of money, uh, will shift to private universities which are mushrooming across the country or will go abroad uh, if they can afford that. The ones who cannot afford that, which is the vast majority of Indian people and which is the vast majority of people who come to JNU to study, they will be condemned to do what they are doing. So if you are a carpenter's son, you be a carpenter. If you are a cobbler's son, you be a cobbler. Don't think of pursuing higher education. If a university like JNU which offered an opportunity for students to pursue good quality research at a very minimal rate, uh, just 100 rupees or 120 rupees for 6 months, uh, which is absolutely nothing, uh, that subsidized education is going to end. And their entire ideological uh, 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 campaign right now is to say that subsidies are a waste. uh, Which is what will, I mean, I'm sure it will resonate with people in Europe and in America as well, that how subsidies from the social sector is being withdrawn. And uh, the ones who are going to be the most affected by this are the people coming from deprived backgrounds.
6: So the student community rose in um, opposition to this completely atrocious and anti-student policy.
2: This
1: is Aparajita Raja, or APU. Another student activist pursuing a PhD at JNU.
6: First it began with the universities in Delhi. We occupied the uh, uh, University Grants Commission uh, building. Uh, We we barged into their uh, building, the government uh, building, and we uh, squatted over there. We had a sit-in over there. And the sit-in continued for more than three uh, months.
1: It was peak Delhi winter. Modi had just given a speech at the Summit of the World Trade Organization in Nairobi, laying out a plan to privatize higher education.
6: Uh, It would just become like any other commodity in the market that can be bought and sold. And um, so by and by, uh, this movement which began with uh, the universities based out of Delhi, uh, we managed to create a joint action committee which involved universities across the country.
1: And as the movement grew in size, it also grew in scope. They brought in a structural agenda.
6: The fundamental issue of right to education, that education cannot be a commodity. And um, there has to be more ease in access to education. And we raise the question of how uh, education and access to education has a specific classist and casteist and a gendered uh, idea to it. And that has to be addressed and redressed
1: in other words apu umar and their comrades saw the push to privatize education as not just a threat to some abstract ideal we've dubbed the right to education the threat of limiting access of installing a toll booth at the front gate and entrenching a new normal built on loans and debt is a violent act that perpetuates more violence for apu occupy ugc was a watershed moment for her own activism because The movement forced the students into conversation with the outside world. The threat of debt was not just a threat for students.
6: Because of our uh, sitting in over there, a lot of roads had been blocked, which was affecting the small shopkeepers uh, in the neighborhood. All right, the small roadside eateries, the cigarette shops, the uh, bookshops, small, small, small shops that were getting affected. So then we uh, we sat down and put our heads together and we decided that we need to talk to these people.
1: They asked the shopkeepers about their own struggles. They listened to stories about slogging through just to make ends meet. They shared their own stories and soon realized their struggles were interconnected.
6: And, you know, it was so interesting. That they got on board with us. They were convinced with us. I hell, they they gave us food on on, on credit. The small cigarette shop bahia over there, he used to give students on on credit. And every day he would inquire, uh, did, uh, did the officials say anything? Did they respond to your memorandums? So there was a constant, you know, dialogue.
1: There was a bus stop outside the UGC office. And Apu and a few fellow occupiers started riding for a few stops while people headed to and from work.
6: We had a pamphlet uh, written and prepared, which was addressed to the citizens of Delhi. So we would explain uh, to people like who we are, why we are sitting, what is the issue we are uh, uh, raising. And we used to um, seek their solidarity and support in our movement.
1: The passengers would take Apu and her comrades' pamphlets back home or to work. And as she imagines it, conversations would ensue.
6: It's not about convincing them completely or, you know, taking them, they're like our allies or they're our comrades now or something like that. It's just that at least we've initiated a conversation. We've put some seeds over there, which might not reflect right now, currently, but probably down you know, after a few years of, of some time, when things become more difficult, you know, uh, uh, these things tend to come back.
1: Eventually, the Indian government did back down from scrapping the fellowships altogether, but it rejected all the students' bigger demands.
6: But um, the fact remains um, that despite all of that, I find that movement to be a successful movement. Because a lot of people... uh, Gain first-hand experience of you know being part of a large collectivity which is articulating uh, for rights and uh, and political rights and and that movement also generated a, a whole bunch of new activists people who have never been engaged in any form of organized politics but that moment movement gave an opportunity for people you know, to, uh, to to embrace the identity of an uh, activist in that sense. And, and that has gone in, to, uh, in a long way forward. So a lot of people who got initiated through this movement went back to their universities wherever they were studying and, you know, um, they uh, uh, organized their fellow students into uh, student organizations and groups, independent groups. Which then negotiated with the administration over there, and also this particular movement because we, we it was it was a sit-in, it was a long elongated movement of sit-in. This this also gave us opportunity to have conversations amongst us.
1: Apu's experience reminded me of something Veronica said about her own experience during the 2017 occupation at UPR.
3: The strike process um, gave the you know gave everyone the opportunity to. Take a pause from the things that you know being like they should be, and to have you know like a tester when you go to Sephora or I don't know if you go oh, to yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to a restaurant and they can give you you know like a sample of the meat. Yeah. So this try give you that opportunity <clears throat> to to experience and to create um different conditions of living because. If it's the kind of try that you, you know, stay in, at the place, at the campus in, in this case, um, you are not at your home. If you are you know, um, a trans person and you don't have the support of your family and you, you are not in a secure place for you to be, and the university is on strike, uh, you can go to the strike at the university and you can stay in there for, right. for the time you know, that the strike um, um, stay on. And you can live um, by yourself, um, you, know, like you can experience that kind of, of freedom. And it's really beautiful.
1: There's a memorable little moment in The West Wing when Rob Lowe's character goes off on a little soliloquy about education. I would play it for you, but copyright laws privatize such creative collaborations, so I'll be Rob Lowe for a second. Quote Education is the silver bullet. Education is everything. We don't need little changes, we need gigantic, monumental changes. Schools should be palaces. The competition for the best teachers should be fierce. They should be making six-figure salaries. Schools should be incredibly expensive for government and absolutely free of charge for its citizens. Just like national defense. That's my position. I just haven't figured out how to do it yet. End quote. This is many liberals' fantasy in a nutshell. Education as panacea. The solution to every societal problem that plagues us from inequality to racism to gender discrimination to environmental exploitation. If the problem, at the end of the day, is population, as conversations I have sometimes boil down to, the solution, I'm told, at the end of the day, is education. But the absurdity of Sorkin's metaphor speaks to the delusion of the argument. Schools should not be palaces. We don't need more princes and princesses more fancy things than football games. In fact, palaces are exactly what higher education has been. At least in the West, universities are by and large exclusive, expensive bubbles for the elite, these days filled with ever-newer dorms and dining halls and gyms. If anything, schools should be streets, open, kinetic spaces of entangled communal action that can, as one scholar put it, burst the bounds of the lecture hall. And I don't mean the bullshit paper community, invoked by a legion of administrators and diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. And I also don't just mean teachers and students. I mean everyone.
0: Today's episode was created, written, produced, and edited by Yardane Amron. Johanna Fay was the executive producer, and Brett Lashua and Will Brem were the producers. Flux theme music was composed by Joseph Menadio of Pattern Based Music. Full credits for today's episode can be found in the show notes at FreshEdPodcast.com. FreshEd Flux is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the UCL Institute of Education, and listeners like you, please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.